Here we go. Hello and welcome to the Master Mind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is the co-founder of Mind Valley, serial entrepreneur, international speaker, and artist. As a part of Mind Valley, she brings her female perspective into the company leadership. She is a happiness from within advocate. She takes her kids to trips to Amazon jungles to recharge or joins groups of entrepreneurs such as Maverick 1000 on Richard Branson's Necker Island. She is the creator of Transformational Quest, Live by Your Own Rules. Welcome to the show, Christina Mand Lacchiani. Thank you, Matt, for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on the show. I understand it's really late where you are, so I appreciate you staying up to do this. Um, I'm excited to dive in and learn more about your work. So why don't we just start by giving the audience a little bit about your background and all the amazing things you're up to. Um, put together all the things that happened to me and I just go along with the flow. Uh, so, um, well, I've been, I've been in business for, of personal growth and transformation for the past 16 years. So I guess uh, for this show, that's the most relevant thing. And um, for the past uh, one year, uh, I would say I've been finding my voice and speaking more. So if before I was there more like an entrepreneur and marketer than um, in the past one year, I've been through a transformation uh, of becoming more of a speaker and an author myself. So that's, that's my background. And well, yeah, you mentioned happiness uh, is the theme with which I started, but actually, um, jokingly, I call myself the advocate of dark matter because <laughs> I tend to talk about, um, about, um, about coming to peace and to terms with yourself about finding the way to yourself, to, to, um, to accepting yourself. And oh, you cut out a little bit at the end there after you said you're accepting yourself. We may have to do just audio only. We'll see how it goes. But I, I lost you at the end after you talked about the dark matter and uh, the journey <laughs> to accepting yourself. Well, uh, I just, yeah, we, in my Malaysia, internet is not always very reliable, unfortunately, so, but I hope we can pull it off. Uh, I was saying that, um, yeah, my, my main theme right now, my main topic right now is more um, finding your way back to yourself, being honest with yourself, and actually accepting yourself the way you are, and that is, in my opinion, um, the, the way to happiness and the only way to truly be at peace in this life. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think it's a lot easier said than done. And, and in your journey coming from entrepreneurship and being in, involved in Mind Valley and all the beautiful minds and hearts and people there discussing all these topics, um, what have you learned? Like, what are you, what are you sharing when you're speaking and you're out there on stages? Because like I said, there's a lot of people out there, you know, kids, adults, and they're just, they're not happy with themselves. They're, they're not kind to themselves. And what can we do to really fully accept ourselves and, and live authentically? Well, um, it is a very big question and actually I could lecture you <laughs> for about an hour of what I would suggest to people, but that's not what I think we want to do. Um, I think that um, the main idea or the main gist of what I'm trying to, to convey to the world is that often, often we are not aware of, um, of the masks that we are wearing. Wearing, uh, wearing for the world. Initially, we learned to wear the masks to, to fit in the social picture, but then we associate with them and we're forgetting what is inside us. So we end up um, growing more and more layers as we go through life. And, uh, and the more layers we grow, the uh, less satisfaction we feel because truly the easiest uh, way to be happy is to actually just be yourself. Uh, I, I want to maybe give an example of a friend of mine. <laughs> he, um, he was once asked, um, what do you think is happiness? And he said, when you don't have to lie. And it is truly so. It's the easiest is to be yourself. And the thing is that the thing with lying is that it's easy. It's relatively easy not to lie to the world. It's much harder not to lie to yourself. Uh, because that's literally the only coping mechanism we have in, um, in the situations when we don't like something. So 
it, it is a huge question that you, you ask right now, and I, I don't really know where you want me to start from. But let me, let me bring an example to make it more rel relatable, maybe. Uh, we all have uh, situations uh, in life where we suddenly feel that, um, oh, I shouldn't be thinking this way, or I shouldn't be feeling this way. And that's literally where my journey started. Uh, I have been married to a very successful person, uh, Vision, uh, who is the founder of Mindvalley and the heart and soul of Mindvalley, uh, also a speaker and also and so on. So, uh, and for years when I was uh, introduced in public, uh, I was often introduced as Vision's wife, and always felt a little bit awkward. I would say, I would joke about that and say, no, excuse me, he's my husband. It's the other way around. But I would keep thinking, why do I feel this way? What does it, um, what does it mean? And we all have these situations where we feel uh, something which we think we shouldn't. And that's where, that's where my journey started because the truth is that there is no such thing as wrong feeling. <laughs> Everything is given for, to us for a reason. So that's where I started digging. Uh, that's, that's the beginning of the journey to, towards yourself. The, the more complicated question is, how do you get the guts to be honest with yourself and how do you get the heart to accept yourself the way you are? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would love for you to dive in wherever you want to start. I know it's a big question. I love diving into the big questions because they're, they're so important and you can really dive in for a long time. You know, you've done a few talks on how to be happy, the seven deadly mistakes, uh, love yourself, all mm -hmm. those types of things. And, uh, and I thought it was a book, but it's more, uh, um, I don't know if it's a course or a program, the transformational quest live by your own rules. So maybe you can just start where, wherever you feel is most important because it's so true. And it's interesting that we have a lot of young people out there that are trying to find themselves in their teenage years and also, you know, into university and getting a job and they don't feel good enough or connected or whatever the case is. They don't know how to find themselves or live authentically. And this will go into your thirties, your forties, your fifties, and right into your deathbed. If you're unable to, you know, get that connection and then have the courage to move forward. So I'd love to hear you speak about that and how we do find the courage. Uh, well, uh Again, you touched upon a lot of different uh, scenarios because there is this um, uh, moment which is very relevant right now for a lot of people is the comparison moment where we feel that we have to compete with the rest of the world or we have to be, uh, we, we are in a race in a way to, to be as good or we, we keep comparing ourselves and feeling less than. But then there are um, like, um, I, I think it's one of the symptoms uh, the most important thing is probably uh, to, uh, to, to, to really be honest with yourself. And that's so hard to explain because the thing is that, you know, th that's the interesting thing about being delusional. You are usually not aware of that. You know, when you're asleep, <laughs> well, unless you practice lucid dreaming, you're not aware that you're asleep. Uh, so that's, that's the thing that I'm trying to uh, probably um carry to the world is uh, is the message of you know have the courage to to question why do you feel certain things why do you think certain things and and start to understand what it is and i guess the easiest thing is to bring examples rather than to be um ambiguous uh for example for us women um <laughs> well it's easier for me to talk as a woman there's a big question how do you present yourself in the professional world uh do you man up you know, <laughs> do you become tough? Uh, what is the strength being a woman? Is it the same strength as um, when you are a man? Uh, so in my particular example, I love um, like accepting the fact that I'm a flirty, a flirty person was a very hard thing. It was hard for me to accept it and it was hard for me to, uh, to express it and to, uh, to stop pretending or, or stop uh, lying to myself and just say, yeah, that's what I am. I, that's how I talk, that's how I interact with the world. And whether you like it or not, whether it's appropriate or not, uh, that's what it is. So how does it come across? I have a habit of wearing very bizarre things on, on stage. <laughs> they, they are either good early or very much on the edge <laughs> um, and in the beginning I was having hard times doing that but for me it was interesting you know when you go on stage and I talk about being yourself and being true to yourself and accepting yourself the way you are uh, do I uh, adjust myself to the audience or do I have the guts to come as I am the flirty 
maybe for some people inappropriate, but extremely woman woman or girl woman. I don't know what to call it, but not not maybe the stereotype which is expected to be on stage. And I've I've had to I've had to um, have the consequences of that. I was once speaking at a huge conference in in Moscow. Uh, it was massive. It was several thousand people. The people who were speaking there were such luminaries. I was really intimidated. And of course, I had the, I had the pleasure of talking about how to slow down, uh, you know, to success in the, <laughs> in the big world. And after I made my one hour presentation, somebody from the audience uh, asked a very logical question because I was in this little dress and, uh, and on high heels and looking all girly. And somebody, somebody asked me, so, you're teaching us to relax, but have you made your first million? And it was humiliating. And I understand that this was the response to the way I present myself, but do I have the courage to present myself this way? Do I have the right, is that the right thing? Because there's this whole discussion. Like, do you have to aspire to be something else? We think that aspiring to be something else is exactly the way to transformation. I want to be a better person, but I want to be a better person doesn't start uh, just anywhere. It starts with first you accepting what you are right now with all, with all the weirdness. So my weirdness is this and coming to terms with that and, and actually saying maybe I'm not the good girl that I I've been always trying to be for 40 years, now 41. Um, that, that was my journey, I guess. So uh, for men, I, I suppose it will be a slightly different aspect. Maybe it will be more about strength, about success. Uh, but we all have this picture of perfection. And if we don't fit it, we start coming up with all sorts of ways to, to feel better about not fitting it. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, you touched on a lot of subjects there. I feel like in my own experience anyway, it, it's the person that I want to be later. And so if I want to get better at something, whether it's a skill or a podcast or whatever, I'm not there yet. So I'm not good enough as I am. Or when you're younger and you're a kid, it's like, oh, when I go to university, when I get my first job, when I get my first rage, there's always a next step to limiting being fully happy and joyous and content with where you are in the process of growing. And we're always growing as human beings. We're always evolving. We're always changing. And the challenge is to be content as we are. You know, if you want to change something, maybe you want to get a little bit healthier. You want to change um, what you're doing for a career, things like that. It all takes time. And the real mastery is if you can um, get into a state of, of happiness, self-love, and contentment with wherever you are in the process, because inevitably as human beings, we're going to want to grow. We're going to want to expand and we're going to want to keep creating. So there's always going to be another level to get to. And, you know, you touched on a lot of things there, but I'm curious because you're a mother and I know that's very important to you as I was doing a little bit of, of research and you love your kids. I'm curious because I'm a new father and I have a daughter and I'm wondering what, what beliefs are you, would you hope to install with, with your kids? What do you feel like the most important beliefs are or, or anything else if you want to elaborate on childhood or, or motherhood or anything like that? But I'm just curious, the beliefs you'd love them to have and then just the youth in general, if you could empower them with either mindsets or beliefs or anything like that, what you would choose? You know, I'm, um, well, I would say that I'm actually a recovering perfectionist, so uh, I don't take uh, life um, uh, so seriously. <laughs> That's actually called by Oscar Wilde, and I love it. Life is too important to be taken seriously. So when it comes to children, uh, I live one day at a time. So if you think, if you ask me what are the most important values, I guess, uh, I guess courage and freedom and, and, uh, and curiosity are the values. But how does it express? Every day gives you opportunities to learn and to grow and to, uh, and to give uh, your child certain values. So uh, I don't make a curriculum or a plan what, or, or some kind of traditions that I have to follow so that children learn certain things or certain skills. I believe uh, in this beautiful saying that um, you can train your children or teach your children all you want, they will still grow up to be just like you. So um, that's, that's the interesting thing because on one side, we want our children to do better than us. Uh, but on the other side, um, I also don't want to go in the path where I make them do things just because I didn't uh, succeed in certain areas, you know, where we try to compensate uh, our losses in our children. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I didn't succeed here, so you sh you'd better do it. Um, so when it comes to my children, uh, I guess the, the authority for me in, um, in uh, 
being a parent is Shelly Lefko. She's, um, she's an author and a speaker and uh, a beautiful woman I've known for a few years. And she has this interesting idea. She says, whenever you interact with a child, always ask yourself, what is the belief that your child is going to carry away from that interaction? And that's literally has been my guiding star. So whenever my children do something, I always ask myself, what is the belief I want them to carry out of that? So sometimes I'm strict, but other times I will let them do things because, um, well, the example she brought was very interesting. She said she always had um, bad times brushing teeth. So she'd spent a fortune on her teeth when she grew up. So when her grandchild, um, I think it was grandchild refused to go brushing teeth. She literally, you know, after trying everything, she literally felt like forcing the child to do that because we grown-ups understand that brushing teeth is so important because if you don't, you lose them. And I understand that. But she said, if you ask yourself that question, what is the belief that the child is going to take out of this interaction? Then forcing, literally physically forcing your child to do something what they don't like is going to give them the belief that they're powerless, that there is a force which can actually make them do certain things. So when she was bringing this example, she was saying, I chose, you know, if you're going to lose all your teeth and spend a fortune when you grow up, it is probably a lesser damage than if you grow up thinking that you are powerless. And for me, it's such a beautiful example because I've had these situations, I just can't bring them straight out of my head, where I also choose a powerful belief over something which I think is right um, because I'm grown up and I have my certain baggage of, you know, beliefs, this is right and this is wrong, you know, you should, you, you should <laughs> I don't know, wash your hair or brush your teeth and so on and, and so on and so forth. So for me, that's the, probably the most important rule in parenting. What is the belief my child is going to leave this interaction with? That's beautiful. I would have never thought about that. I probably would have been the person that's like, we're doing this. <laughs> we're doing this. This is good for you. So um, I would try all the psychological tactics that I could. And I understand that apparently kids are ninjas like that. And, you know, no matter how good you are with language that they are just going to do whatever they want to do to a degree. So you have some influence, but they're also going to be um, challenging in many ways. So I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully she uh, listens. We'll see. Um, how old is your child? She's only six weeks, seven weeks. Oh, God. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. So I, have no, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I'm going to slip in the podcast questions here and there so I can have all the help I can get. But uh, luckily, my partner is pretty amazing and she knows what she's doing. So I'll, I'll rely on that and I'll be the assistant coach. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different ways that I want to go with this. And I guess that I'm curious from your background, you know, being around successful people, business entrepreneur um, and having this transformation what do you think is most important to speak about? I'll kind of throw some things at you, but I find it very interesting that we can be in these high level spaces of, of success, of uh, personal development, of all these different things. But a lot of people in the audience and even the speakers can feel insecure. They can feel unhappy. They can feel incomplete. Uh, a friend of mine, I don't know if this is true, so hopefully it is true, but um, apparently told me that Aubrey Marcus just came out and said he was unhappy. And this is a guy who is pretty well developed. He's successful, um, you know, engages in spiritual concepts and and things like that but is finding this emptiness within them and i think that so many people wherever they are in the path there's like there's something missing for them to feel complete to feel authentic so maybe you've mm. met some people that you find are genuinely happy and they genuinely love themselves <laughs> and care for themselves and they exude joy you know can you share either some roadblocks that that people prevent themselves within themselves from experiencing that? And what is it that we need to do to actually live that way? Because even for me, it's something that I talk about a lot in the podcast. I, I, I'm terrible to myself sometimes and getting better at that, but I would love to improve it always. Well, in your case, what I can feel is this uh, classical story. You know, men uh, want to be strong and successful. matter we are the, we are the harshest critics to ourselves so if you feel that you could be a little better because because you feel like that or because you have compared yourself to someone uh, it will trigger a very strong sense of shame unfortunately this is something which we 
cannot control. That's how we are, uh, you know, wired by nature. When we don't fit our picture of perfection, we are triggered and that emotion is one of the most unpleasant emotions, the emotion of shame. So we don't know what to do with that. And then we come up with a lot of interesting things. But in answer to your question, um, you know, Marissa Peer is one of our uh, authors in, in Mind Valley, and she's a psychotherapist with huge practice. She works with celebrities, like with British uh, royal family. She's worked with singers and, and actors and um, athletes in the US, like truly very successful people. And she shared this one interesting thing. She said, you know, uh, the people that she works with are usually already at the pinnacle of their success. And that's the interesting thing, because while they are on the path to their success, while they are trying to attain that next goal, they still have the hope that when I get there to the top, I'll finally be happy. I'll finally feel worthy. I'll finally feel that I deserve love. I'll finally prove those people that I deserve love. So that hope that up there, there is finally this destination makes them move. But the moment when they reach the top, and they reach that goal that they've been going for, they suddenly feel, they, they end up face to face with themselves and with their demons. And that's when the fun starts because <laughs> they realize that all of this road was nothing. And I truly believe, that's why I talk about, you know, path to yourself. Your relationship with the world changes when your relationship with yourself changes. You don't have to bother about your relationship with the world. In fact, it's an illusion. It's, um, we think that we can influence someone or something. In reality, it's an illusion. We can only reflect our you know, environment, but what we can influence is our relationship with ourselves. And that's where we should start. And only then we should start attaining the goals and stuff. So when it comes to uh, practical examples, the goals, unfortunately, oftentimes we don't question what do we, what do we want, what do we like. We are given these goals by the society and we follow them because that's, these are the rules. And I know it from my experience because I was born in Soviet Union. Soviet Union had a very interesting society. There was no entrepreneurship. We had prescribed paths to success. I knew exactly when I was a kid that I have to go to school, study well, get into university, get a degree, get a job, get married, have children. And that's the path to success. Everybody knew that was the path to be happy. Of course, Soviet Union collapsed before I grew up. Uh, so a lot of things changed in my life. But that, um, I call it Hermione syndrome, you know, when you try to do things by the book. So at the age of 40, my life was, uh, was by the book. I had a business. I had a husband. I had two children, statistically. Two children is exactly what I'm supposed to have. And more than that, I had a boy and a girl. So I'm very by the book. Uh, I had a work that I loved. I traveled like crazy. I've been all over the world. And I have amazing parties in my life. <laughs> and at 40, I suddenly realized that the only place where I can afford to break down and admit that I'm a huge pile of mess and nothing more than that was behind the closed door of my bathroom because I couldn't afford my family to see that I was not perfectly happy. So not only do we uh, strive all our life to the goals which don't come from our heart but come from outside, we also, for all our life, we're putting on the mask of being okay, of being happy, of being successful, of being that example to everybody else. And it just doesn't fit. And um, the thing is that last year, I suddenly realized that maybe marriage is not for me. And I had a beautiful marriage. <laughs> well, it's still a beautiful relationship, but it's not a marriage anymore. Uh, for a woman to find out that she doesn't want to have a family or to have a children, or for a man to find out that he doesn't have to, want to have a career, But for a lot of people, these will be the right decisions. We just don't dare to even admit them to ourselves that maybe, maybe society prescribes is not what I like. It's not about me. Maybe it's about someone else. But the thing is that because we don't question that, we, we just keep on going to, to the goals which are not our goals. We don't even know what is true. So just to give you an example, when I finally, when it, it wasn't my decision, it was me and my now former husband, we decided that yes, we're going to separate. But even conveying that decision to the world was not easy because people have opinions. 
and these opinions about someone else's life and you have to stand for them and not only do you have the guts and the courage to say that what the world thinks is right is not for me do you have the courage to stand for this decision in the face of people actually criticizing you, your family telling you, what are you doing? You're ruining your life. You know, you're ruining your, your chances of happiness. You know, I want to have grandchildren. You should get married, all these things. And, and both men and women get that all the time. So yeah, that's, that's a short answer to a very serious question. <laughs> Well, I loved all that. And I think it's super important. And it comes up on the podcast a lot, just talking about living other people's uh, values or success. And that's what our culture does, depending on which culture you're in. And that culture will start with your family and your friends and your city and your country and whatever that's defined by. And so we all inherently receive that. And we're not taught to question any of those things. And so but can I can I go in even further? Sure. Every culture does that. And a lot of people who come to personal growth, and I've been in that industry for 16 years, are just as unhappy because they think that they break free of the, you know, of the goals which their peers in the outside world have put on them. And they start following the goals of their new of their new community, of their new tribe, without even questioning. So the the, the problem is not that the goals come from outside. The problem is that sometimes we don't dare to be honest with ourselves. I've seen so many people who are on the path of transformation for years and are utterly unhappy and they shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, I, I a hundred percent agree. And I've seen that myself and I've been curious about it because, you know, the spiritual community quote unquote, and the personal development, the self-help community is really exploded in the last five, 10 years. Um, you know, it, it wasn't as popular as, as what it is now. So now everywhere you look, it's all about a better you. And I'm reminded about the Alan Watts quote where he says, um, you know, self-help and personal development is absurd. You know, and he goes on and does like an hour talk about it because he's, he's amazing. And I love when he speaks, but he just talks about like changing who you are is absurd. Like you just got to be who you are essentially. And he puts it much more eloquently. But I'm, can you speak on that a little bit more? Why do you think that is? You know, and I think people try to find it in different spots. There's no right or wrong. Like, you know, I've had Jehovah Witness come to my house for uh, uh, weeks in a row and we're having these deep discussions and, and my partner just laughs, laughs and we're out there for an hour talking about philosophy, but they're sharing with me, this is the way of life. This is the path to happiness. And for somebody who might be lonely in their house, maybe that gives them community and a path and a way of life. Um, and if that's what you do, and maybe personal development is the same thing. Maybe yoga is the same thing. Maybe martial arts is the same thing. Um, but how do we go deeper? How do we avoid that trap of like, you know, finding the shiny object and really getting to the meat and potatoes of, of who you are and, and your own happiness? Well, the thing is that we, uh, we don't have the faith in our own abilities. So I'll, I'll give a, an example from a slightly different area. When you talk about health and nutrition, for example, or exercises, uh, the general school of thought is that somebody has to give you the prescription. These are the rules. If you follow the rules, then you'll be healthy. And I've done a lot of interviews. And my biggest problem, for example, is that I believe in uh, the power of us as humans. So rather than teaching someone to follow certain rules when it comes to health and nutrition, the much better way would be to teach people to listen to their body and to trust the signs of their body. But almost every teacher in that area, almost every, I'm not saying every teacher because I've, I've, I've seen some really amazing people, but almost every teacher says that, but no, you can't trust your body because you have emotions and your emotions will overwrite you and you will be wrong and you will think that that's what you want, but that's not what you want. So we are taught from an early age that we do not know what we want. We are just taught that from the very beginning, you don't know what you want. And it's incredibly uh, present in uh, health and fitness and in nutrition, because these are the very, um, very big uh, industries, uh, well, niches, and obviously a lot of money. And obviously it's much easier to, uh, to give prescriptions. And a lot of those uh, schools are pretty good, I agree. And a lot of people need that, but the truth about life is that nobody has the answer. Life is not black and white. There is no this or that. There is no either or. There is always a balance of the opposites. You know, the, the very simple things. If you want to achieve a goal, on one side, you have to have a very strong motivation. But on the other side, you have to let it go. 
If you love a person, you have to learn to be attached to that person because that's part of love, but you have to let that person free. And it is true about everything. There is no one, two, three. There are no scenarios in life. And nobody knows your answers. You're the only person who has the answer. The problem is that we are not taught to trust ourselves, to trust our instincts, to trust our bodies, to trust our hearts. We are told, no, you don't know. We come out of this logical society where we need to have arguments, you know, everything written down on paper. And if we can't explain it, then, you know, we discard it. So that's the thing with, with any, any area. We, because we don't trust that we know. I, I don't know what is good for me. Let me look for someone that I trust. Let me look for a teacher. Let me look for a guru. Let me look for a new tribe that I relate to. And they seem nice. And they seem like the people I want to be like. And then I'm going to take your rules. I'm going to take your recipes and start living by the new rule book. But it is still a rule book. The only person who knows the answer is you. you all you need to do is to learn to trust yourself. That's wonderful. I absolutely would agree with all that. And I've looked at, uh, you know, the school system and the way that it's set up and it kind of bothers me in that sense of, of, you know, it's conditioned from a very young age, at least from my perspective is like find outside um, guidance and then also outside validation. We're always looking to validate outside and we're always looking to be guided and somebody showing us the way like animal farm is such an interesting example. And, you know, there are many other examples where, you know, humans is kind of what we're almost bred to do. So what I'm curious about is how do you think that we were able to build that strength and intuition to start listening to ourselves? Because it's a, it's a very frightening thing for a lot of people to just be that guide. And food is a great example because, you know, I was a vegetarian for a few years and, you know, I got a lot of feedback from there and then it was vegan and then it was this and then it was that. And then as that's unfolded over time, you've just seen countless stories on somebody following a protocol, no matter what it was, getting very seriously sick and a lot worse because that didn't work for them, right? But somebody's a philosophy, they want to implant it on you. And I've just seen so many examples where not, not one thing fits everything. And if we can get really good at listening to ourselves and being willing to make our own mistakes. I think that's a part of it is we're afraid to make a mistake. So we don't want to act on our own because then we're responsible for that mistake. But you'll, you'll get more learning from that because you're trying it your way and you're going to get better. So I'm just curious um, if you have any insights into how do we begin to do that, especially when the conditioning for a lot of people is so old and so long. Well, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily come just from school. And I, I'm actually not a, uh, against schooling system. I think, you know, if you understand that we do have to go out to look for facts and for research and so on, it's fine. It's fine. The, the, the question is much more serious because we are talking about life and there are no facts in life. Uh, so I think the problem comes from uh, us being afraid to, to be wrong. Uh, and, and the beginning is when you are okay to accept yourself fully. So I like to compare, uh, compare this to a building. Every building has a beautiful facade, which is always like nice and pretty. And then there are a lot of rooms in that building, but there is also an attic and a basement. And most of us are very good at facades. A lot of us understand all the rooms, but how many of us have the courage to take the flashlight and go into the darkest corners? That's why I'm saying I'm the advocate of the, advocate of the dark matter, because we inevitably, you will come to the point where you will have to be okay with certain things which don't fit your picture of perfection. And I think people actually in personal growth are more riddled with that problem because we are even more perfectionists. We just replace one picture of good and successful with another picture of good and successful. Our perfectionism is the right emotions. You know, I can't be angry. I have to be always in love in love, I mean, in the energy of love, I have to, you know, I have to be at peace. So I can't be stressed. I can't be angry. I can't be upset. And that's literally is a path to nowhere <laughs> because we are going to ruin our psyche. So to be, uh, to learn to, uh, to trust yourself, I, I think that starts with accepting yourself in all its beauty, with all its facets, whether it's light or it's dark, whether it's something which you have the guts to show to the world, the peaceful, loving, beautiful part of you, the enlightened part of you, whether or, or it is the other side, which is still there, which is not going to disappear anywhere. Uh, and 
And that's the first part. You have to be okay uh, that there will be parts of you which are so-called dark, negative, painful, whatever, unpleasant, uncomfortable. Uh, and the other thing is that, you know, once you accept that, then the idea of failure kind of stops existing. You will try and something will work and something will not work. Uh, and here I like the analogy of uh, machine learning. So how is artificial intelligence so smart? It's interesting, but people who have uh, tried to uh, watch how artificial intelligence uh, gathers the intelligence, you know, the process of machine learning, they say that it is a really uh, fascinating process because uh, what... Um, that machine, let's say so, does is that it does a lot of random things and some things work and other things don't work. And all it does is that it does those random things over and over again, very quickly, all the time without being discouraged. And eventually it becomes so powerful that it will outplay or outgame, outdo uh, any human being. So, and we as humans, we are afraid of failing. We are afraid of, of making mistakes, no matter what we say. But in little lives, we don't, uh, in little things in life, we don't want rejections. We don't want no's. We don't want to be, to feel silly, to feel mistaken, to accept, uh, accept that, you know, we are not always perfect. And, and that, that fear of, uh, of the dark, fear of failure, fear of, uh, of something unpleasant, that's, that's what, what pushes us to look for sure ways you know i'm not going to try to do the machine learning way and learn it myself and figure out what works for me i'd rather go and find someone who has done that and um you know and get the recipe and both as i said <laughs> there's no one or the other way we have to combine both we have to learn we, we have to search for examples but we also have to have the courage to learn on our own experience those are all really wonderful examples. The machine learning one, especially what I think about is just, you know, what we do as human beings a lot of the time is first of all, we're, we're afraid of making mistakes, but then if we make the mistake, then we put a label on it. Like we're a failure. We shouldn't try again. And with each mistake, we, we increase the power of that energy of the label of, of not being good enough or, or make a mistake. But if you look at any successful person that's ever made it, um, they will say we made a lot of mistakes and it seems to be that success has a lot to do with the the um, ability and the vulnerability to make mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake and to continue moving forward and it's a great insight to say hey look at somebody who's done it look at people who've been successful at it but also try your own way you know there's certain protocols that might help you uh, speed the process but the most important thing is to take action and the more action you take the more learning you're going to get you're going to learn a lot of ways not to do it but you might learn an insight that might be totally random for something else and it, it is the continued trying you know the example i like to give is through skateboarding because skateboarding is so hard and it's so challenging and even jordan peterson writes about it and there's so many different facets to that but every single you tr try every every time you try you learn something and if you look at skateboarders what i find interesting is that i'm an athlete and so i'm usually in shape and i'm pretty flexible and i try martial arts but i'll see somebody who's uncoordinated um they definitely don't go to the gym they've got these different body types and they're doing things way harder than i'm able to do them and i'm just like how the heck are you doing that and it's such a wonderful culture because you know they're showing up but they're learning it in their own way and and we as skateboarders are not afraid to make mistakes because we know it's 95% of it and so we enjoy the process so if we can get to a space where we're being honest with ourselves and enjoy the process of making mistakes and learning and growing we're going to get to that place of what we perceive to be successful so what i wanted to ask and feel free if you want to to add on to that as well but how do you or what would you share? And you've shared a lot of these ideas, but summarize like keys for success and happiness just on a, like either philosophical points or, or, or a little bit of a guiding principle. It doesn't have to be a hard stone, but maybe things to consider. Uh, well, uh, I, I do have a lecture on happiness where I give uh, quite a lot of different uh, ways to deal with that. And I think the uh, most important principle to understand is that happiness is um, not an emotion. It's not, um, you know, we often think that uh, happy people are those who are always joyful, who are always like laughing and, and, and are in good mood. Uh, but these are emotions. Happiness is, um, is a state. So uh, 
it, it's actually a theory which uh, dates back to, to mid 20th century by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And uh, he's actually talking about um, uh, the, the set point um, of happiness. Uh, I don't remember exactly the name of that theory, but it is, it, it is the idea that we all have a certain set point of happiness. And no matter what happens in our life, we'll slide back to that set point. So you would see people who have everything fine in their life, but they would be always miserable. That's because the set point of happiness is low. And then you will have people who have uh, misfortune on top of misfortune, and they're still kind of uh, really, uh, well, I can say cheerful, but they have a good outlook on life. They, they keep hoping, they keep uh, uh, expecting something good in their life because their set point of happiness is high. So in, when you understand that to attain happiness, you have to... Um, work with something a little bit more stable than your mood. So it's not about uh, manipulating your emotions, your states in the, during the day, like, oh, I, I should be in the good mood, I should be at peace, I should be this and that. It's actually looking into your set point and that requires long-term strategies. So that's, that's, it's not a very easy um, concept to explain in, in one answer, but uh, the point is that uh, long-term strategies uh, usually um, don't have immediate effects um, because if if you if you feel stressed for example a way to get out of stress is to express it let's say yell right or or go and have uh, in my case a chocolate to feel better or i don't know a glass of wine or whatnot uh, this is um, this is the instant gratification type of approach where we are trying to uh, manipulate the emotion of the moment. When we're talking about learning to be happy, we have to look into long-term strategies. So long-term strategies usually don't have such immediate effect. Uh, and there are quite a few of them, but I would say scientifically it has been proven that the strength of our connections has one of the strongest correlation with happiness. So invest in re your relationships. Uh, and I'm not talking about just romantic relationships. Uh, better, strong, uh, meaningful connections than a multitude of connections. In our current society, we are obsessed about reach, but we actually have to uh, refocus into depth to, to, to be truly happy. So better, fewer friends, but true connections. Uh, so that would be one of the long-term strategies. As I say, long-term strategy doesn't have immediate effect necessarily. But in the long term, it raises your set point of happiness. And, and the, uh, the interesting thing about how uh, social connections influence us has been massively researched in the past few decades. And it's been proven to have um, not just effect on our levels of happiness, but also on our longevity and our health uh, to the point where in UK, they have the ministry for uh, you know for loneliness because there a lot of elderly people they suffer from that so invest in your social connections that would be probably the most um, useful advice to to learn to be happy uh, and another one which is my favorite is learn not learn make peace with uh, with pain and discomfort <laughs> forgiveness is another good technique and it's part of that uh, part of that uh, whole uh, a whole um, like bunch of, of strategies and techniques and, and things you can do uh, to learn to be happy. And, um, and, and that's the, the paradoxical thing. To be happy, you have to make peace with, uh, with pain and, and discomfort. Otherwise, you can't learn to be happy. <laughs> so, uh, and that, that is the topic in itself, because as I said, I'm a little bit of an advocate for dark matter. But just to give you a context, why, why, does, why is this important? And that might be relevant to you. Uh, as, as parents, we want our children to be happy. And how do we see that? We see that in the absence of any discomfort and pain. So we avoid uh, exposing them to anything which might be un uncomfortable, unpleasant. Uh, we try to solve their problems for them. You know, when the child hurts themselves, we want to make sure that the child gets through pain as fast as possible. And an example from my, from my life, um, I once went into a bedroom where my children were sleeping and my, my son, uh, my older child, was crying. I asked why. He said, I forgot to do my homework. I didn't forget. He said, I didn't have a chance to do my homework because we just came from a trip. And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm scared because I have to face the class and, you know, it's humiliating. And we have to understand for the, that for the child of his age, and he's in, in middle school, it is a really serious situation. 
And my first impulse as a mother was to, uh, to protect my child from discomfort and pain to go and write a, a letter to the teacher explaining that, yes, I took my child out on a trip and as a consequence, he didn't have a chance to do the homework and, you know, take the blame on me. Uh, but I remembered what Shelley Lefko told me, what is the, what is the uh, belief that your child is going to get out of this uh, interaction. And I stopped myself. I said, you know what, to my son, it is really unpleasant situation and I understand that you are scared and that's, this is what I do when I'm scared. And I shared my tactics, my techniques to, to deal with fear, with unpleasant situations. And I said, don't worry, when you come back home from school, whatever happens, you know, I still love you, we'll figure out what to do next. So of course, nothing terrible happened. He faced his fears, he came back. What, what, I'm, trying, what I'm trying to explain is that as a parent, it is important to allow our children to get the pain and discomfort. Because if we don't, number one, we'll give them the mythical utopian idea that happiness is absence of pain and discomfort. And every normal human being understands that it is unattainable, that there is no such thing as happily ever after. There are always going to be things happening in our life. Because if we want to have emotions, we will have the whole spectrum of that. If we want to have uh, love, we have to deal with losing that because we will lose our connections, our, our attachments. You know, people die, people go. Uh, we lose things, things break, things, you know, disappear. If we want to have a life, part of life is feeling pain and discomfort. And there is no such thing as eternal bliss. <laughs> and that our fascination with that, with that idea that it can be just that, you know, I'll just do all my lessons, I'll just learn from all the gurus, and then, and then I'll start ha living happily ever after. It's a utopia. So the first thing that we teach our children by pr protecting them from having pain and discomfort is that there is such a state as happiness without any discomfort and pain, without any darkness. And this is not going to happen. So children grow up with that myth, number one, and number two, they grow up without the skills of dealing with pain. None of us has ever learned the skills of dealing with pain. When we talk about failure, classically, what do we talk about? How did I get up and how I became stronger? We don't talk about the moment of being flat on the ground. Never. Nobody talks about that. And this is not my idea. This is actually a beautiful uh, TED speaker, Brené Brown. She's a sociologist. She has a beautiful book dedicated to that, that to the idea that we, we skim through the moment of being in the bottom, of being on the ground, of being faced in the mud, because we are scared. We are ashamed. And because of that, we grow up, because our parents did that to us. We are doing that to our parents. We grow up pretending that there is no such thing as pain and discomfort and never getting the skills to deal with that. But the thing is that they are going to happen. So if you want to be happy, you have to learn how to deal with that. That's all amazing. And, and I completely agree. I think it's such an amazing point. Um, you, you spoke about it and I, I made a, um, a note on it. So I want to make sure that I say it, but it's making peace with, with pain and discomfort, but also, you know, the idea of living in a society of instant gratification and, uh, the, what you're talking about, uh, I, I don't, don't know why it's, I can't see it now, but it's basically that the, the quick fix isn't going to be long-term happiness. That idea, you, you phrase it a lot better. Like the thing that's going to make you happy right now is not going to be, be long-term. And I think that's so important because what I see promoted a lot in the personal development spirituality now is the quick fix, whether it's biohacking or flow state or, um, you know, psychedelics or whatever. It's like, Oh, you're going to do this one thing. Then everything is going to change. And that's not the truth. Although I, I think it's good to look at, ideal protocols people have been successful and all of that kind of thing but the idea of the instant gratification culture that we live in it doesn't work like that and it, it ends up causing more harm than good because you do it and then it doesn't work and then you're confused once again so you you made a lot of really important points there and i want to honor your time but i'm very curious if you can share just before we go um maybe you're just one or two or however you want to talk about it um techniques to deal with fear because I really love David Goggins book because it's a kick in the teeth to a lot of the teaching that people are sharing now. And he's talking about exposing yourself to these things and having the full spectrum. I kind of had the same idea where maybe if I 
studied enough gurus and meditated enough and did every class and every single thing that I could do, you know, forever, um, you know, watch every TED talk, watch every Mind Valley talk, watch, do every course, then I'm going to float around on a cloud and everything's going to be hunky dory forever. Just not the case at all. Um, so I'm just curious if you could, I think dealing with fear and, and being comfortable in discomfort is, is such a massive tool that needs to be discussed more. So, yeah, I, I don't think I can answer that question very briefly. Uh, well, on one side, there is the fear. Uh, you know, I love um, the idea of Susan David. She's a PhD in psychology, also a TED speaker, by the way. And her idea is that there is no such thing as good and bad emotions. There are emotions we want more of and emotions we want less of. So when it comes to fear, uh, in most cases, we think it is a bad emotion. But I'll give you an example. When I go on stage, generally, I have uh, a certain degree of fear. Of course, if we are talking about psychology and emotions deeper, uh, we, we should define those emotions a little bit with more precision. But let's, say, call, let's call it fear. When I go on stage, I am scared, generally. Uh, sometimes so scared, I forget how to breathe and I don't eat breakfast because I'm so scared. Uh, and in that case, I actually welcome that because i know that this puts me in the state which i need to be in to perform properly when i don't feel fear i start feeling uh, a little bit lost because i'm not sure if i'm in my optimal state so in that particular example fear stops being the emotion we want less of in my case in that situation fear is the emotion i actually welcome and I don't want people to misunderstand. I'm not go, I, I don't go looking for painful emotions in my life. Not at all. It's not about trying to see the pain or trying to figure it out or trying to bring it out. It's more about not shying away from it. It's like in the hero's journey, you know, when you come up to the cave, you actually have the guts to go into that cave and not get stuck and, and, and stop moving at all. So when I'm talking about... Um, coming to peace with pain and discomfort, it's more about not shying away from it uh, and not, you know, going looking for it because it will come, it will find you, you know what, no matter what. But here I'm coming back to that same idea that Susan David shared, that there are no bad or good emotions. The emotions we want more of, emotions we want less of. Another classical emotion is love. Uh, a lot of people in personal growth transformation want love. But if you ask those same people, are they willing to commit to a relationship, which is also love, then love st starts becoming a much more complex thing. You know, we start explaining things, you know, this love is good, that love is not so good. And I'm not saying that uh, people in our niche don't want to commit. <laughs> I'm just saying that sometimes we are afraid of love because we are afraid that that will change something about us or about our life or whatnot. And in that situation, uh, love suddenly stops being, starts being the emotion we want less of <laughs> and not more of. So if we stop judging emotions, then that's the first step to being okay and at peace with, with discomfort. Uh, because then you just look at it as another emotion. And uh, maybe a good comparison is going to the gym. When you go to the gym, you put on weight so that you feel your muscles, so that you feel pain. You don't not welcome that pain, you welcome it because you understand when you come out of the gym, when all your muscles are hurting, you feel love, life going through your whole body, through every cell of your body. And that is a welcome pain. The same with, with emotions. I love to compare emotions to a physical body. Uh, if you just allow all the emotions to be, you welcome them, you're friends with them, then they stop being so unpleasant. You start seeing the value in them. You start learning out of them. Like, you know, like uh, Viktor Frankl said, uh, pain ceases to be suffering if it finds meaning. So if your pain has meaning, it doesn't, it, it, it stops being suffering. So when we come back to fear, <laughs> my best teacher in fear was actually Harbecker. <laughs> I attended his event and he had beautiful mantras, which I repeat. So with fear, usually I, um, I sidetrack my brain because our brain has this, uh, you know, biolo uh, not biological, we, uh, through, through evolution, we've learned, our brain has learned to draw the most uh, terrifying scenarios to protect us from, from danger. So no matter what happens, our brain comes up with those horrible pictures. So one, one of the mantras we had was not, don't think. 
So if you know that it is not going to kill you, that it is safe, <laughs> then just stop thinking about things that scare you. Uh, that's one of the simple things. Another thing that helps me a lot is the idea that, also from Harvecker, that we are successful to the extent to which um, we are willing to expand our comfort zone. And comfort zone is expanded by doing something which we are not comfortable with. So whenever I go to a dentist and I do not like dentists, I remind myself, this is my investment into my success. <laughs> so that's how I face this kind of fear. So there, there are little things, and I'm sure there are teachers better than me who can teach you how to deal with fear. I'm more... Um, more general in in the sense that you know when you have those feelings you don't want to feel whether it's fear or shame or even love in some cases what do you do with that that was my answer <laughs> <laughs> that was an amazing answer i just thought you're gonna tell what, what am i supposed to do with those emotions can you share that briefly i uh i, I it might be a longer answer and i and i know that we're getting late it's very late where you are so you can feel no, free to answer okay. that or pass but i was i thought you're gonna keep going i'm curious <laughs> so um here, there are also many, many authors and many, many teachers who can teach you that. So the same Susan David that I just referred to, she has a beautiful book called Emotional Agility. Uh, that actually deals with, uh, with a proper process of dealing with uncomfortable emotions. But in a short, um, in a nutshell, uh, first step is to accept the emotion, to accept that it is, uh, name it with the proper name, uh, and that's that's an interesting point because often we want to whitewash our emotions to replace them with something more acceptable. But accepting the emotion the way it is, um, what helps here is just to remind yourself that your emotion is just something which is passing. It is not defining you. It is not about you. It is a feeling that is happening now, but it will pass. The second step is um, actually uh, trying to understand what this emotion uh, talks about. So. Uh, example, the physical body. If something hurts in your body, uh, it is a signal of your body that you have to pay attention to that part. If we didn't feel physical pain, we could go out jogging and come back home with, you know, uh, losing a limb because we didn't notice because, you know, we don't feel physical pain. So we need physical pain because um, we need to pay attention to the problematic uh, places in our body. The same way with emotion. We need unpleasant emotion to pay attention to certain aspects of our life. So that's step number two. You look into why are you feeling that? What does it say about you? What does it say about your life? About, you know, what's going on? And then the next important step is stepping out of it and moving on. <laughs> but that's easier said than done <laughs> and there are a lot of a lot of uh, useful practical techniques to to help you in this process for people who love journaling uh describing how you feel in a written form uh journaling your uh, negative emotions is a, a really helpful thing a lot of a lot of psychologists uh, suggest that uh so you can you can describe unpleasant experience in your life and then uh, close it and, and come back and write it again. And oftentimes when you do it a few times, you will, you will start feeling easier. Just expressing the emotion helps. So there are a lot of different ways. Uh, what, helps, what, what had helped me uh, was a very interesting idea is that oftentimes we suffer from the same things because we get into the pattern. And every time uh, a situation happens, it triggers the pattern and we think like, oh my God, here you go again. Here you're saying this thing again, and that's going to lead in a certain path. So for me, what helped was the idea that every experience is a new experience, and it gave a little bit of a curiosity. So, you know, this is a new experience, and you might be saying that thing to me again, but it is not going to trigger the old pattern because I'm different. So let us see what's going to unfold. So that, that would help me to deal with, you know, repetitive uh, negative experiences. But again, it's such a, it, it's the topic that is worth a course in school and in the universe. I think emotional, emotional intelligence, emotional agility, capabilities to deal with that is something, is one of the life skills which every single human being needs. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. That was wonderful. I, I totally agree with the emotional intelligence and IQ, uh, especially being a man, because as we go, as we go through, like that's, that's a whole thing that you need to learn from a youth to go into like, you know, into adulthood is how to uh, understand those emotions and, and use them more productively and not, 
um, in a very uh, unproductive way, let's just say. All, everything that you shared today, I think, was wonderful and really practical and useful and things that people can apply in their life. And that's why like protocols are just at least a framework to give you an idea and a perspective of how you might be able to shift some of the things that we all experience. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you and everything you've shared and your work and what you're up to. Is there anything that you wish that I had asked or that you want to leave the with listeners with before you go to sleep? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, share, I'll share a little story from my life. So years ago, I had a chance to talk to Dalai Lama. And that was uh, in the days when I was still working with the refugees here in Asia. And on the other side, I was, well, Vision was building up Mindvalley. I was, uh, I was helping him in that process. And I had this uh, cognitive dissonance because on one side, I saw the suffering of people day after day because I was working with the refugees and, you know, refugees from our part of the world. Some, some of them lose everything, everything they own, their whole families. Um, and on the other side, we were building Mind Valley, uh, the school for future humanity, you know, where, where we teach how to be <laughs> at peace and happy. And I just couldn't reconcile the two things in my brain. And I asked that question to Dalai Lama. I said, how do I go about that? I understand that I have to be happy, but I see the suffering of other people. And he said a very simple thing. He said, Christina, you can't help anyone if you're not happy. So the thought I want to leave the audience with is that please, please be happy. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story. Uh, where can people find, find you if they want to look more into your work and everything you've done? You've, you have some amazing talks on Mind Valley and a lot of work out there. So where can people get in touch and contact you? Well, um, I do, I'm the face of Mind Valley in Russian. So most of my act, activities in Mind Valley are unfortunately in Russian, unfortunately for the audience, except for a few speeches I've made recently. But I do, I'm a bit more active on Instagram. So if anybody follows Instagram, then uh, you can find, literally I post everything there. Whatever happens in my life, it will be there. And it's me posting, not my team. And I do have a page here on Facebook, so you can stick to that too, but not, not many things end up on the page. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and your work and everything you've shared today. Uh, I wish you all the best and, and hopefully we'll stay in touch. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks guys for listening. See you in the next episode.